Today on episode number 206 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Jeffrey Galley discusses inquiry-based learning. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest is part of my partnership with AQ and their course in effective teaching practices. Jeff Galley serves as Associate Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs in the University System of Georgia. He comes to USG after 10 years with Emory's Oxford College, where he led a number of faculty development initiatives, including the Institute for Pedagogy in the Liberal Arts, which a number of faculty from Georgia institutions have attended. Early in his career, he developed workshops as the director of first-year writing and later as the chair of his university's English department until his departure from Emory in 2008, when he became the founding director of the Center for Academic Excellence. Galley's scholarly writing includes a number of books on innovative pedagogy, He's the co-author of How to Be a HIP Campus, Maximizing Learning in the Undergraduate Education, and the co-editor and contributing author of two volumes of essays that emerged from the IPLA, Teaching, Pedagogy, and Learning, and Revitalizing Classrooms. Jeff, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I am thrilled to be connected with you, and we have such a funny, twisted way that we're (laughs) connected in all these ways. You know many of the former (laughs) guests who have been on Teaching in Higher Ed, and we discovered some of those common friendships and collaborations that we have. And then we we also have a connection now with AQ, and AQ once a month brings me a guest, and it's just so fun to get to talk to such experts. But this time I got to pass you <laughs> over to them because I thought you'd be a great person to write for their Q blog. And I know that you're in the process of doing that. So thanks for to them for that that relationship that we have. Yeah, and wonderful I'm, collaboration. Yes, thank you. I'm glad to be here. And I think it's a great collaboration that you, you developed, our network you developed with a lot of different kinds of higher ed folks. It is really fun. And one of the things that you said in an email that really rang true that you and I have in common is just this love for teaching and love for learning. And I wondered if you would share first off a little bit about some of the things that you find important in terms of collaboration in your own teaching and in your own work. Yeah, I think that it was pretty much an instinctive thing years ago, a long ways back. But it's become something more of an articulated theory. And so this idea of, you know, we are guides, maybe, as, it, no matter what you've done or wh- what degree you've earned or books you've written, the idea is that we're together in this, whatever it is, the discipline, the course, the subject, or life. And so students or colleagues or strangers on the streets, people you talk to in the diner, you know, they are colleagues in a way. So for me, the idea is just of being ready to 
open the door to a conversation and to be able to ask questions, but to listen really closely and try to respond to what was actually said, not to what was going through my brain. And so that tends to result in all kinds of paired collaborations. Most of the projects that I've done with students have been co-presenting at conferences with colleagues. We've co-edited or co-authored books, team taught, presented with scholars together. I mean, it just naturally kind of happens, it naturally happens that people who join together have a stronger voice and it's, it's richer, it's more complex, it's more like life. So, I mean, I really do like the, just the instinct and maybe the approach of social, collaborative kinds of learning on the scholarly level, the, the classroom level, and, you know, in life. One of the things I've noticed that holds some people back from that is just how vulnerable you really have to be to collaborate. Stephen Brookfield, who's been on the show a number of times now, he shares about how much he's gotten out of, for example, team teaching. But he also says how hard it is because that imposter syndrome comes and says, I can't, you know, this person's going to see what a fraud I am. And I don't, you know, that's, it's uncomfortable, but he still just pushes through the discomfort because of the benefits that that collaboration can bring. One of the things it can keep us from is being able to be more creative in our teaching. And I wonder if you would just spend a few minutes talking about how creativity has played a role in your own teaching and what benefits you've seen. Creativity comes about, for me, for me, it comes about more as a need of the moment. So it's more like, okay, we're moving toward a certain point and this is not working. This is not working. What I planned and spent so many hours planning, it's not working. So I just kind of like, there's a pause. And I think the students or a colleague, someone in the office or wherever we are can see that I'm really working with this and something just starts to happen. It could be reaching out in desperation. It didn't matter what the feeling is. It could be something where you just like see a different track. Example, best thing to do is an example. When, when I, between the master's and, 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 and PhD, I taught high school while my wife and I were taking care of her parents. And, one, and of course, I wasn't, I didn't have any standing in that high school. I was brand new and I got to teach something for which I had only a few hours. I was teaching algebra. I mean, I'm a, I had a master's in English lit, but I, I had a Mm, let's see, almost a major in math. It was, it was legit, but I was teaching algebra and consumer math. And so the algebra classes took an ordinary routine, a rhythm. The consumer math class was the class where they placed students who could not do math. Mm-hmm. And so first day, these students didn't want to be there. They had no interest in learning consumer math. So I struggled with what to do and about the third or fourth weekend, I just put the book down, closed it, and put the eraser down. I said, what's going on? And the students started talking about athletics. They started talking about a revival that they were having in their community. And I said, revival, because I was a chaplain's kid. And I said, what, what is that? What is that? What does that involve? And so they started talking about different ways of enjoying their church and their revival. And I said, well, can we have revival in math class? And they just kind of like went crazy. <laughs> and so we created, we created a revival consumer math class. 
And we had, so the guys that were totally disconnected and misbehaving, not paying attention, the ones that sat in the back, they were supposed to say things like, amen, or bring it on up or something. I, mean, I can't remember, it's been years. But we did more consumer math problems over the next few days while the revival metaphor lasted. And so, I mean, it's just like something happened that solved a problem that they needed the moment. Done that in not quite so dramatic fashion in a lot of different ways with book substitutions, syllabi modification, changing a scholarly project, writing an editor or a publisher, working with a colleague through a particular challenge. Creativity for me comes about not as like a gift, it's more like a, a necessary bit of work to create something that works better. It's interesting to me that you would have framed it that way because <laughs> I just recently wrote a blog post and I'll, I'll put a link to it if anyone wants to take a look and didn't have a chance, but a colleague of mine used a polling system for the first time with some open-ended questions. And yeah. he, I asked him if he would, wouldn't mind sharing how it went afterward, which he did. And one of the things that happened was that there was NFL scores that were going up there on that little chat back channel chat. And there were <laughs> links to YouTube videos and things like that. And I did, I did understand the challenge, you know, that that's an example of something not going the way he had planned. Yeah, there and you go. Right. I did share some techniques that you can use. And I, I, I do understand that things can go so far off that it it's may not be helpful to the learning process. But one of the points that I did make was, you know, one option is to just go with it. I mean, <laughs> which it sounds like you did. Yeah, I mean, you weren't connecting. Mm -mm. Yeah, there are scripts and and, and unscripted things and sometimes having it unscripted leads you back to where you want to go. And sometimes where you want to go is not as good as where the conversation takes you if it, you just suspend the plan for a minute. So to me, the, just that suspension of the plan, the, the, the lesson, the idea, the concept, the term, just, just suspend that and then go with where the student mind is. I mean, you can end up in pretty good places. Mm -hmm. but one of the courses that I, that I teach, I, well, I say that now I'm at the USG. I don't teach now. This is not good. But anyway, I still think of myself like I taught yesterday, is the memoir. And so the memoir is, you know, a, a portion of a person's life that meant a lot, that amounts to a good bit. And so I would choose every semester, I would teach a course in that, and I would choose four different memoirs every semester to keep me alive and fresh and engaged. So I wasn't just teaching a book, but I was teaching more or less decisions that someone had made in telling a portion of her life that really meant a lot. And so that connection to the students in the class is just right there. It's just hanging there. It didn't take a lot of creativity to see that if someone is telling a certain kind of story and leaving things out, the whole invitation is to explore perhaps what's been omitted and why, or what's included and why, or who's, who's being loyal to whom or disloyal to whom. So the way that the book is constructed just automatically sparks conversations that go all over the world and back, and the students who write creative nonfiction essay, autobiographical essays of their own, really enjoy that particular genre because it's so vital to the way that they live and make decisions on their own. 
One of the ways I know you've used creativity in your teaching is through the development of courses that fall under the umbrella of inquiry-guided learning. What can you tell yeah. us about what this method is? Okay. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> you have six hours. Go. Okay, so in, in, in nutshell version, I just in two sentences, it took a faculty at a small liberal arts college approximately two years to come to a definition. Mm. Okay. So we, and, and lar largely this was a process, not a beginning with a definition by Virginia Lee or those at Texas A&M or Penn State or Miami of Ohio or Florida State who have legitimate, strongly developed inquiry programs. We started with our best practices. And so at, at Oxford College of Emory, we said, okay, we're doing some pretty cool stuff, but we don't have a name for it. And then one of the scholars at the college said, well, Emory's a research institution. It should be about inquiry. And so when you say, when we said inquiry, it took us to a vision statement that President Wagner had on the website. This is the, the president at Emory before Claire Sturt became president. And it talked about inquiry driven, inquiry focused, inqu you know, ethically driven. And so this idea of ethics and inquiry went together and the same scholars, professor of religion, wrote the original document after a Saturday morning retreat. And that's how devoted, how crazy we were. But he, he wrote a two or three page description of what he saw as being the qualities of inquiry. And he called it ways of inquiry. And he attached some, uh, some bullet criteria or qualities. And essentially it's about using the discipline to invite students to explore how knowledge is created in that discipline. And so that's, that's it. That's not the Virginia League definition that came out of work at North Carolina State or the other institutions that I mentioned, but it was for us to challenge students to examine a specific problem to which there may be no single answer, through the lens or through the practices of the discipline. And so for me, it, as an English professor, it was like, okay, I've got to stop and think. How, what are the forms of literary scholarship? How do we produce knowledge? How, how is knowledge constructed in my discipline? And, you know, I came up with three or four different sub sort of specialties. And I looked at what I taught when I was in a previous institution and some of the courses just would not fit with like active problem solving. So I came up with, you know, three of like say a half dozen courses and began to, to tinker with them. But essentially that core moment of looking at a problem through a disciplinary lens and using the, the practices of that discipline. So the, we used to say our mantra was students would learn to think like a biologist hmm. or students would learn to think like, uh, literary scholar. And one of our, we, we specified all kinds of outcomes. And one of our goals was to encourage students to be able to articulate the differences so they could speak about multidisciplinary approaches to complex problems. That's a short version. Okay, I'm sorry. I, should, I probably took too long, but that's kind of like, a, that's as short as I could make it. Not too long at all. I was going to say that my kids are, they've been passing colds back and forth. And so yesterday I had an unplanned day with my son who is six and he is 
just such a curious learner and already has bypassed yeah. me in many disciplines, I'm afraid to admit. And <laughs> one of the things he really wanted to do was build something out of this cardboard box that had he just he knew something great could come out of this. And so we go on YouTube and I found something that just captivated him, a vending machine, a cardboard vending machine that you can make. And I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes because I can't believe some of the stuff that's out there. I, I do yeah. not have a lot of gifts in spatial intelligence or engineering, but at the same time, my son really wanted yeah. to do this. And so I could, I could just stop myself and say, I'm not good enough to, to do this. That's not my area of expertise. Or we could dive in and learn together. And it was really fun. But as you're talking, it feels like at some point in our educational institutions, too many of us turn that off. And our classes, yeah. we stop thinking of our teaching. We, we, we think of it as in, I'm going to tell you <laughs> maybe at best yeah. how knowledge is created. I don't know that we can necessarily tell. And you use the word invite. Can you talk more mm -hmm. about how we invite students to explore how knowledge is created? So I've taught at a regional university, Louisiana Monroe, for 20 years and 10 years at Emory. And so, you know, I, I know the feel of different kinds of students at different ages, different kinds of points. And without exception, students get excited when they're confronted with problems which they have confidence to explore. It's mm -hmm. just that simple. That's it. And so if they have this feeling that they're going to be overwhelmed, that the professor is like something way beyond something that they could ever do, that's not going to work. It's got to be something like, I mean, you could have the, the fellow who wrote the definition of inquiry for us on that Saturday morning what, had written six books in, in religion, but he, he didn't talk about these are my six books. That's not it. He said, let's look at the, what, they're, what they've been saying about St. Paul through the ages. And so that's kind of like a really seductive way of coming into scholarship. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, there's this, 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 and this. Hmm. And so he's just spanned four centuries with one sentence and invited students to examine original and secondary articles about thought about a specific religious figure. Same thing in literature. It's like inviting students in a really good open way to accept the rigor and complexity into their daily lives. And they, they can do a lot more than we think they can do if we invite them. And so the other side of inquiry is, is called scaffolding. Mm. Scaffolding. And that, so there you go. Okay, so when they stumble, what do you do? Or when you're introducing a mystery that's really hard to understand, what do you build around that mystery? It has to be some sort of, you know, structure that they can climb in order to peer in the windows or climb in order to understand how to think about a certain thing. And so the balance between the support that we give them or equip them to think with certain concepts, that's vital. If you give them too much, you're talking and lecturing. If you give them too little, they're lost. And so for me, that's it. it the, the teaching and learning is a very, teaching and learning are dynamic. It's not something that you can just get up and go do and come home. It's, it's more like action reaction or something like that, where the way that I, what I say is, can, is, partly conditioned by what the students have said and vice versa all the way through the whole the whole the whole semester the whole I, 
particular class day. One of the disappointing moments that I had when I first began to try this in literary criticism class, one of my students who had come from a very gifted in high school, he had great academic profile. This is an Emory student, straight A's, you know, really, really bright. He was used to having things packaged for him. And so he was good at memorizing and he didn't want to have to think. And so he said, well, Dr. Galley, since I'm going to have to teach myself literary criticism like that. And so that was the first part of his sentence. And I went, oh, no, that's not it. We're doing this together like that. And so I kind of like just to probably turn beat red and just listen to him and then talk to him later. And I said, you know, you really had a, a really great insight. It does mean you're doing a lot of self-teaching. But I'm with you. I'm kind of like with you. Ask me a question. So, you know, it goes back to asking good questions. Ask a question and we'll go there. But he was frustrated. I mean, inquiry or, you know, being an actively engaged student, it's not easy. But it seems to be more vital to what your, your child, your, your young son was doing with that cardboard box. If that gets into the mix, then it's going to be a good thing. Mm. You have some great examples of what this might look like in different disciplines. So could you talk a little bit about, I know some of your colleagues that you've collaborated with in natural sciences, social sciences, yourself in literature, and also in language. Okay. That was a 2014 chapter that you're, that you're talking about that came out of uh, Patrick Blessinger's book on inquiry-based learning. But these friends of mine, came together to actually create an assessment project. This is 2014, and we started as a college in 29 to 2011, those two years I was talking about. And so at 2014, we were already three years in, and we were thinking, you know what? We're doing really cool stuff, but we don't know how to assess it. We don't know how to measure it. So these four, the four of us, were came together. I was the director of the teaching center. And so I didn't tell them that I had learned of an RFP for this book, but I wanted to see how the assessment effort was going, and it was going really, really well. And so I said, you know what? We could do this. If we wrote blah, 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 and we got accepted, we could do a chapter together, four parts, and frame it as Oxford College's efforts in inquiry. And so that's how it came together. So we, we spent, you know, like one day a week, one afternoon, an hour a week talking about our own courses. And so what one of them was doing, I don't want to use their names because I'm not, I haven't asked their permission to talk about them as people, but one is an anthropologist. And the thing that she, she's done many different inquiry projects. The one that comes back most clearly to me is she thought of an, a central metaphor of games and game making. And she had the student, and I may be misremembering the one that she used in this chapter because I've the, the three or four different courses that I'm mm -hmm. familiar with tend to run together, but society and social groups of distant times compared to modern day, she was trying to find some way to bring them together. And so she said, what, she came up with this idea of what is a game? What is a game? And the students were challenged to study these cultural practices through the lens of a game and each student could pair up most of the time they did them in small groups of two and three they developed like monopoly they made their own game they made their own parts their players their rules the board 
and they presented this at a conference in the library, and it became like the game of social practices, something like that, mm. the game social form. So it's all really like cardboard box, but it was serious in that it had to have rigor that would be understandable by a PhD professor from Emory whose specialty was cultural anthropology, like that. So she was doing things like that. The Spanish professor, so how is language taught? A lot of times you just do conjugations and memorizations. This professor wanted to take language learning a little bit farther. And so she played with the idea of deconstructing stereotypes. And she said, we have, we have a lot of stereotypes that we carry about each other, certain groups, social groups, underrepresented minorities, how, how, whichever group. And so he, he, she said Spanish-speaking peoples face a lot of stereotypical actions, reactions, language. And so as she was teaching this course, she would have photographs that she would play in different, maybe one day or two days out of the week. And she would say, let's analyze this, this, this photograph. And she would have, of course, the students, this is, these students were probably second semester, third semester, so they were required to speak in Spanish. Mm -hmm. They had to speak in Spanish. And they had to deconstruct the stereotype that the photograph displayed by using Spanish. And so she said, we lost a lot of hair. <laughs> a lot of the students were, you know, like, ah, pulling hair. But students who write about her courses do so with the fondest, you know, affection, you know, appreciation of the rigor, the social justice con component that's in there. And a lot of it is much farther beyond than just conjugating verbs and things like that. The third one, the chemistry professor had the coolest. She came into class. I love this lady. She came into class with a packet of Kool-Aid. Hmm. And she poured it out on the thing, the lab, the lab table at the front. And she said, how would we separate it was like purple Kool-Aid. She said, what does it mean to have purple, purple Kool-Aid? What is the color and the chemical and how do we separate? So she concocted this whole inquiry project with Kool-Aid and students learning how to, in chemical ways, I'm, I'm out of my depth here. I'm not really <laughs> sure how to explain this, but in this, you know, that kind of problem. So they had the problem. This is Kool-Aid. How do we separate this out? I mean, if you look at Kool-Aid, you really can't see individual white and purple grains. It's kind of like all blended together. And so her t the, the task of the students were to create a lab procedure that would enable them to explain in chemical terms what the color purple really was. Mm -hmm. that's, something that's probably not really well explained. But that's it. So the, the idea, the commonality that we all shared. Mine was literary criticism, and I had taught that at the master's level for a number of years, and I knew that just covering successive schools of literary criticism would put these students to sleep. So I thought, okay, can I redesign this as an inquiry course? A problem, a central challenge, a complexity that has no single... I said, so let's just put the theory book on reserve in the library. I would reserve that and a few others, handbooks, and save several, oh gosh, maybe 20 or 25 PDF short essays that were really clear and to the point of a theoretical nature. So Aristotle's poetics, 
you know, short version, just a, a part of that, or something from Saussure, just a paragraph. And then so I would pull out the theory that I thought would be most essential, left the full, you know, Norton Anthology literary theory on reserve. And I said, okay, we're going to start with a set of classic short stories. Read the first story, go home, write a set of questions that that story raises, and let's go from there. And so we essentially, the question that we were raising in that literary criticism class, how does a story mean? What does a story mean? How does a scholar make an interpretation or make meaning through either reading or through analysis or both? And so what I wanted them to do, and they did by the end of the semester, was we retired the classic collection from Hawthorne and Walker and all those, Hemingway, and we picked up a recently published, it's only two years old, an anthology of modern world short stories. And these students had learned enough psychology, linguistics, historical, deconstructive, structuralist, sociological, feminist theory to choose a story in the new anthology and write a 10 to 12 page research paper, which essentially became a first reading of these stories that were just published. So the, the way that inquiry works is the students do the work in the discipline to produce some artifact that's authentic. So whether it's a game or purple Kool-Aid or, or a literary reading, the idea is that kind of thing. And it can get really exciting. So it's not boring, even though it sounds boring. It doesn't sound boring at all. All of these examples are fascinating. And I just keep being impressed or, or just really inspired by the theme of relevance throughout all of them. I mean, even <laughs> I've never had, I, I, I don't want to sound like a victim here, but in terms of my own lack of uh, scientific abilities, it often is because that relevance was missing. I didn't understand why are, why are we doing this lab? What I don't under, like what, how is this relevant to me? But wrapping it in a mystery, wrapping it in a problem where I'm actually going to be part of trying to solve that sounds like a real way to engage. And I wonder if you could maybe talk about if this felt too large for someone to undertake around a whole course, are there ways to use in, in Jim Lang's phrasing some small teaching around this? Can sure. we can we use yeah. some inquiry in smaller ways to get some practice and make some mistakes early and then make it larger? Jim Lang's book, Small Teaching, points out uh, way, strategies of using like assignments, short assignments, major assignments to modify a moment or a unit where you would be telling. And he's like, I'm, I'm just going to tell you this. You know, there it is. Or can we construct an assignment to where the students would be challenged to discover that thing or to apply or to create? And then it, so that it can be just like a simple assignment. I, I've, when I was working as a faculty developer with faculty who were newly hired and they were going like, what the heck is this inquiry thing that you keep talking? But everybody, I mean, everybody, it's in the water. And mm -hmm. I said, well, so what it, the class that you taught when you were doing your PhD was what? And so it's usually an introductory class. All right. What was the, what were the moments in that class in that course that gave the students the most problems? Oh, you want to go there? Yeah. Give me the problem that was the most significant to them. And they, they would, they would come up with something that, required the students to do a lot of memory work or the concept was really profound and complex. And so I said, can we take that, that moment and create an assignment 
where the students would explore maybe bits and pieces of that and just break it down. And so, and they said, I, that would be hard. I'm like, yep, that's inquiry. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And, you know, everybody, as, as time went on, more and more people had really cool examples of short and long things, whether they were classroom based or kind of like a homework thing or a research project. And so we had this, you know, list of best practices that everybody got a chance to know over time. And so people who were newly in coming to Oxford College, they would they would have colleagues, mentors who would say, yeah, don't try to do your whole course. Forget that. Don't define the course as an inquiry course. You may get the sticker, the curricular signification that you're teaching inquiry, but the gospel truth is start small and then work outward from there. And this is the point in the show where we get to totally shift gears and <laughs> recommend some things that may or may not have to do with the episode. And mine, it's funny because I feel like we're sojourners, you and I, because you had mentioned in an email that we both have such a passion for our teaching. Well, I didn't know that mine was going to relate to the episode, but it kind of does because I'm going to recommend a, mem- <laughs> a memoir today. The memoir is called Educated, a memoir, and it's by Tara Westover. And I actually heard about it from Katie Linder at Oregon State. She had it on her email list of books that she wants to read this summer. And I was instantly captivated by this idea. This woman, she was 17 years old when she first set foot in a classroom. And her family are a group of survivalists in the mountains of Idaho. And she spent her childhood stockpiling home canned peaches and preparing for the end of the world. It was very trepidatious for her family. The millennium, the change of the, from 1999 to 2000, they were convinced that was going to be it for the world. And and spoiler alert, it was not it for the world. (laughs) And (laughs) it's, uh, she ends up, I don't want to, they, they share this in the book description, so I'm not giving too much away, but she ends up eventually going to Cambridge, uh, to Harvard and to Cambridge University and just is a remarkable story. Talk about resilience and it's just absolutely wonderful. And it, it made me think about so many things in terms of our own teaching and not knowing. In fact, I don't think I'll give this away, but I'll say that uh, in her first, very first history class, she doesn't understand a word. And when she tells the professor she doesn't understand the word, he assumes that she is being racist and rude because everyone, of course, knows what that word means. And uh-huh. everyone doesn't know what that word means. And then that just taught her that she should never ask any question because she didn't understand what social norms she had broken. Right. And But she just wow. learned, don't ask questions. You'll you know, uh-huh. create, you'll stir so much up. And I mean, there's just so yeah. much that I thought of in reading her story. And it's I, I devoured it in about two or three days. It's just a wonderful book. She's a brilliant writer. And Jeff, what do you have to recommend today? Probably one that people are more familiar with. But for me, it, it speaks to being a teacher. This It's a book called Reading Lolita and Tehran published in maybe 2000, early 2000, 2003, but it, it was one of the memoirs that I used one semester, and it really changed the conversation in class. The class that we have there is, the classes that we have there are really diverse. So we have a, a high number of students from around the world, many different countries, and the challenge is to negotiate difference and then hopefully with the goal of celebrating difference if we're good you know like can we get there this book is set in the time when tehran was changing power changing hands politically 
and the revolution and the radicals were rising to the top. And this woman, Azar Nafisi, N-A-F-I-S-I, is the author, and she was a teacher. And she taught girls, and she wanted to read taboo literature. And so it's like Lolita, you know, Nabokov's Lolita. And so she contextualizes the reading of this story of forbidden relationships in a country where a lot of things were forbidden in a kind of totalitarian way. And the undercurrent, what survived all of the challenges of that era was this bond that the girls had with their teacher and they had with each other and the love that she had for them. So it's really, it's better than goodbye, Mr. Chip. (laughs) This is really cool stuff. Reading Lolita and Tehran, a memoir. Oh, it sounds like a wonderful book. We didn't even plan this, and we're both recommending memoirs. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, yeah, the memoir. I, I've got a lot of things in my brain there. I love it. I love that genre. I did forget to mention when I was talking about the book that I recommended that a uh, spoiler alert for next week's episode, it just so happens, I don't always record the episodes exactly in a row. And I already know that she's going to recommend educated again next week. But it's that good uh, that okay. when I have people that recommend books over and over, in fact, one book that was recommended three times in a row, I think was by Roxanne Gay. And that was her memoir called Hunger. And people that have been listening to the podcast for a while know that I didn't tell the person, no, you need to choose something else. I thought this is a book that has been transformative for three guests. We leave it in. So you'll hear educated mention on next week's podcast as well. Excellent. That's, that's, I think a good decision. Yeah. 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 And I, I never tell the person like, oh, that's been recommended before. Because I mean, it's just not relevant. You, you know, can't that, say that. Yeah. You can't love that book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to love another one. I already took that you one. Can't yeah. Love, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but cool. I, I believe love. this is the first time this book's ever been recommended. I've, I've never even heard of it. It sounds wonderful. Well, Jeff, yeah. thank you so much for coming on Teaching in Higher Ed and giving us all these things to think about and ways that we can challenge ourselves to have our courses become more inquiry based. I just really appreciate it getting to know you. And I hope this is just the beginning because we have a lot in common as we've already discovered. Thanks for inviting me. This has been this has been a great afternoon for me. Appreciate it. Thanks once again to Jeffrey Galley for an invigorating conversation. And I really appreciate the partnership that I have with AQ and their course in effective teaching practices that enable us to collaborate together and and introduce each other to people like Jeffrey and just excited about where that has been and where it is headed as well. So thanks to AQ. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you have not subscribed to our weekly email, you can get the links to the show notes and also an article about blogging or teaching in your inbox each week without having to lift a finger. You can subscribe at teachingandhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time for episode 207.